welcome to Our Scars Speak. My name is Christina Miner. I'm the host of this podcast. And before we begin, as usual, I want to let everyone know the disclaimer, which we are not claiming to be any form of medical professionals or mental health professionals or any type of professional that will give you advice to go against your doctors or any other professionals that you have in your life right now helping you with your treatment. We're merely here for educational purposes and sharing our story. So tonight, I'm so excited. I have one of my friends, dear friends. Her name is Donna Tucker, but you can also reference her as Reverend Donna Tucker, um, Chaplain Donna Tucker. So she's done so many things. She's had ministry. She's, I don't want to get into her story because this is her story, but I'm just so proud of her for everything that, you know, she has truly been a person to listen to God and move as he directs her um, without judging other people, whether they believe in him or not. So tonight's exciting for me. She's going to share everything about that she knows about um, being a chaplain because it's very, very important, I think. And her and I have had multiple conversations about hospice. And it's important because she's also worked, which God, I'm so excited. I'm tearing all your biography, but um, she's also in law. And so she can give certain aspects from that dynamic as well, as well as hospice, because we've had plenty of conversations about, you know, we're not, a lot of us don't prepare for, I like to say, transitioning, death, whatever word or terminology you like to utilize, but a lot of people aren't prepared. And so what I love about Donna is that she gives it to you sometimes raw, um, but she always comes back and she loves on you. And she's just truly got a heart for the things of God and her assignment and people, just people in general. So uh, I have shared so much and I usually don't do that, but I'm so excited because everything has been going on in your life. But without further ado, Donna Tucker, without all these names, thank you so much. Without the titles, I want to thank you so much for being up here tonight. It means a lot. Having me. I appreciate it. I'm humbled by it. Aww. So um, like I said, you have a few titles, <laughs> but without <Okay>. the titles, <laughs> who's Donna? Just simply, who's Donna? Um, Donna is a person who is a woman, not a person, is a woman who simply loves life, lives life to the abundant because life is too short. Right. And I'm determined that no matter what, I'm going to live and I live according to my rules. Okay. All right. Well, you can't beat that at all. <laughs> now, whether those rules are right or not. <laughs> I mean, yeah, of course, sometimes we get it wrong along the way, but the beauty of it all is that because we've had very a lot of personal conversations, even when we get it wrong, we tell each other straight up, like you you doing you doing too much. Right. Go ahead and pull them back. Um, but we love each other through it and we accept each other for who we are. And we're not perfect. So I right. think that's the beauty of that. Right. Okay. So now you told me or told us a little bit about yourself in that sense. What exactly, you know, before you became a chaplain. I would like for you to kind of share, you know, your story, because, you know, this is all about before, during, and now with how we even got connected to whether we had breast cancer or had cancer of some sort, or whether we've been also, um, what you're doing now before you became a hospice chaplain and a reverend, um, what was life for you before all of this? Um, life was, it was complicated, um, before I, even, excuse me, before I even got into law, what was I doing? I've been in it so long. 
Um, yeah. I don't even know what I was doing before law, but I just, I had a lot of difficult, oh, I was in military. I had a lot of difficulties. Um, and in 88 was when my made one of my major hurdles hit. And that's when I got out of the military. I ended up with a medical discharge um, because they could not figure out what was going on with me. I was having major pain all the time. My cycles were horrible. Um, it was preventing me from being able to do PT. It was literally preventing me from living, you know, um, to do what I, I'm required by military. And so they sent me home. And you and were so in which branch? Excuse me. I was in the Army. Sorry, I was in the Army okay. Reserve. And I got home and started seeing the military doctors. No one could figure out what was going on, you know, first. And then they made it seem like it was a psychological thing. So they wanted to send me to a psychiatrist and, you know, to just talk to someone. Maybe you're just upset because, you know, things with the military, whatever. Now I know pain. Pain is real. I've right. been sick from, since high school with pain, you know, men's, bad menstrual pain. Um, so one day I went to a, a um, local physician, a, a civilian, and we were talking, and I remember being at Chippenham Hospital talking to him in his office, and he was probably just a light, you know, he shed a lot of light. He did, we had a couple, I have, I've had a total of nine exploratory surgeries. Wow. Um, they found that I had endometriosis. That was the initial diagnosis at the, um, so they just kept going in and scraping the endometriosis over and over and over to the point where it was just getting sickening. Um, and so then I ended up seeing another doctor and they found that it, I literally, I kept having cancer cells. They kept seeing the cancer cells in my pack. So mm. that was an issue. And so they would do what was called the cryosurgery where they would go in and freeze off the um, cancer cells. But my cancer cells were growing back so fast that they kept, the more they would go and try to freeze it off, the more, and then the, they do a uh, um, laparotomy on top of that, then it would just keep growing because you're still, you're exposing it to air, even though they're going through your belly button. Um, so from there, and it just went on and it didn't stop. So, and finally in 95, I met another, went to another doctor after I moved from Maryland, moved back here. Um, I met another doctor and at, um, he was in, he, he worked in Richmond at okay. Chippenham, but his, he practiced out of South, South Regional, which was the hospital then and off of Crater Road. So we went there and he was talking to me. And I remember Dr. Tomlin was a lifesaver. And he said, you know, Donna, these are your two options. He said, you can either go through life with the pain and not really know what's happening. We know that cancer is growing, but we don't know the rate that it's growing. And what type of cancer, cancer was that? Was going to back up. I had ovarian, it was ovarian. Okay. So the, but the cancer was showing up, not just on my ovaries, it was showing up on my uterus and that's what they kept burning off. Um, and it, I don't think that they knew the extent of what they were seeing on my ovaries. Because when you're doing a pap, it's not showing that. It's only right. showing, you know, your uterus and it's showing, you know. So when I got to, I ended up, the choices were half surgery. Um, I could have a partial hysterectomy, a full hysterectomy, or we could just do another number 10 on the late um, lap laparotomy. I was tired of being cut. 
mm-hmm. and going through this back and forth and nobody knew what and just being sick. And he says, well, you know, you can also try to have a baby. So that didn't work out because it almost killed me trying to have a baby. Oh, wow. And so he said, you know, so this is you, if you want to try again. Well, no, because I've been on so much medicine because they kept me, they gave me the depot shot to keep me in menopause mm-hmm. um, so that I wouldn't have a cycle so that the more you have a cycle, the more your cells generate and they start growing and they're growing. So without having the cycle, his, their thought pattern was, well, if she's not um, having the cycle, nothing's growing. So then we can kind of keep her at a standstill. Well, that was their logic, but it didn't work. Um, So I ended up having a full hysterectomy in 95 and I was 25 years old. Oh my God. And um, being put at that, and that's when they went in and that's when they discovered how bad my cancer was. Um, that it was, well, it was bad, but it was good. And I say that because if it had not been for the endometriosis mm-hmm. being so bad, my endometriosis was so, um, so widespread. It covered my uterus, my tubes. It covered my ovaries to the point where they were almost unidentified. They were just little black balls, but it covered the can the endometriosis overshadowed the cancer. It smothered it. Oh, that's what the doctors were saying. That right. it, oh, okay. Because I know this was a while ago too. So right. medicine, yeah. was, you know, advanced. So it was sm- It basically smothered and kept. And by it, the endometriosis was growing faster than the cancer. Okay. And so it was by it covering everything. It just black. Everything was black, and it was like it. it you know, when you put a blanket over a fire it smothers the fire out, but it's still, the fire still can still burn. Mm-hmm. And so had I not had the surgery and had my ovaries removed and had everything removed at that time, the cancer would have spread. And then I would have had to go through the chemo. I would have had to go through radiation. I would have had to go through the whole nine yards, but because, you know, I had the surgery, it took everything out. I still had to be monitored. Right. Um, Several years, I still had to be monitored. Um, every month I would go in and they would check to make sure and do, um, a, was not called a pap, but they had to do a cervical screening to make mm-hmm. sure that nothing had attached to anything else to, you know, to keep it from, to make sure that it was lying dormant. Wow. Um, so I could not, I cannot take any type of hormone therapy at all. So I had to fight through menopause mm-hmm. without any type of hormone therapy at 25. Mm. That was the worst experience of my life. I think that was worse than the pain because it took away it, it, the, between the hot flashes, the mood swing, my, it wasn't even mood swings. I completely changed my mm-hmm. psychological, um, changed completely to the point where when I went to the therapist, I, I had to go to a therapist and to talk up to, you know, to really deal with it. Mm-hmm. And to deal with the fact of the up and down, I never know how I'm going to be every day. And to know that I still may have this. And now because everything is gone and the psyche is out of whack, everything is, is, is just every, it's blown out of proportion and it's prominent now in my mind. Um, but I made it, I made it through that, right. that portion of it. And, um, eventually, thank God, after probably about 15, 10, 15 years, 
I came out of menopause. So I no longer have the symptoms of it, but I still have to, um, even at, at 54, I still have to get the cervical screenings. I, you know, we don't get pap smears anymore, but I still have to get, do the cervical screening every year to make sure to see my oncologist and make sure that everything is still the way it is. And if I feel like the slightest pain, I'm like, okay, yeah, is it back? Yeah. What's happening? Absolutely. You know, so I just, um, I've had the, um, is it the BRCA? I know I say it wrong mm-hmm. every time. No, you're, you're um, fine. Yes, right. <laughs> I, I've had both, I have had it twice to make mm-hmm. sure that nothing, because cancer is um, very prevalent in my family, even though it wasn't cervical cancer. It's like every family member on my mother's side has had some form of cancer. And so even that, you know, she, my mom had pancreatic, um, I not had um, colon, another one had breast. So everybody had something different, but everybody had one form of cancer or another. Wow. And, my and I can't even imagine, I mean, cause you had the trauma of, you were young, number one, right. you were trying to have a child that didn't work. So you had that trauma Then on top of it, you right. had the trauma of all these surgeries and then finally they're finding it. And now you're still having to be watched. Um, right. So right now with this that you've told us, um, has the doctor, I know you say they're not really doing pap screenings, but they, they won't do it even though, um, cause like for me, you know, I had the leap procedure because they thought I had cervical cancer mm-hmm. and right. I thought I was out of the woods because now I've had a hysterectomy in 2013. And they were like, no, because they upped the years. It used to be 10 years and then you could right. go to a different type of screening, but now it's 20. So, right. um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if your doctor has done that or not, but if so, like definitely check on that. And then the BRCA genes, how often are they checking you for that? Um, I go every year. Oh, okay. Wow. So they do keep I, well, I, because have of my history and because of my history, my insurance has approved for me to have it every year. Wow. Wow. Just in case something changes, you know, has changed within me. Because our bodies change so, you know, so frequently that gene could come back or, or it could, even though it may not be from my mom or be from, it could still be lying dormant. So they rather check it every year to make sure nothing has changed. That's and so good. Consistent. Um, if I have a consistent three years, mm-hmm. then I can move to every other year. That's good because I know, um, they like my doctors like every five to 10, mm-hmm. depending on when the panel changes. But I did hear of a person last week that I spoke to and she begged her friend to get checked. And her friend kept on saying, no, I can't, I can't because it hasn't been within the five-year frame or whatever. And the doctor did at almost her two-year mark. And she was thankful that she had it done because the gene did pop up. Wow. So it's very, it's very interesting, but um, yeah. So Wow. So you've been through all of that and that was before becoming a chaplain and everything. So what kind of guided you to, I would say hearing the call, that would probably be number one, hearing the call because you were in law for a long time. So did you feel like it was a huge part during the time that I was going through at the, towards the end of me finding out, um, you know, I worked in the law firm in Maryland and I worked one here. And I actually, when I had the surgery, I was actually working with Nikita Minji, um, doing it at that time. And then I took a break from it. 
Okay. And then um, actually went to work with the city to try to see, you know, it's still in law, but to see if it was different. But I think I, I felt like that was stress. And so it was like, maybe that's contributing to everything. So let me get away from stress. And then, you know, I took a break from, I think I just didn't work for like a year and a couple of years and or I think maybe a year and a half and just went to school full time um, mm. to just get myself together. And then, um, then marriage and then life. And then here comes um, 2008. Okay. I'm still working. Um, I actually had taken a break. I think, no, that was right before I took a, my next break was when my mom came September of 2008. My mom had just come back. She had just retired in, in June mm -hmm. and she came, she went on a seven or 14 day cruise. My mother was sick the entire cruise. Oh, wow. The entire cruise she was sick and she, she thought it was maybe motion sickness or whatever but I think my mom knew what was going on because my mother's like me or and I'm like my mother like we will change stuff and make it better just so right. that we can do what we want to do and mm -hmm. I later found out that she had gotten a urinalysis and the urinalysis the color wasn't the way she wanted it to be so she diluted it mm -mm -mm. and <laughs> So when she died, I can just hear, I can picture you as you're talking about your mom and it's like, wow. Okay. Right. So she, that's how she ended up, you know, going, making it to the cruise. Okay. And when she came back, it was Labor Day, the weekend of Labor Day. And we were in the hospital at, I remember being at MCV and visiting my god sister and my mom and we were, went down to McDonald's and I was saying, how I'm, I'm looked over at my mom to say something. Mm -hmm. And when she looked back at me, I'm like, what's wrong with you? Your eyes are yellow. Mm. And she was like, oh, no, no. It's just, I'm just tired. No, tired is red. Yellow is something's wrong. Right. So I said, we're going to the doctor. She was like, no, let's wait. No, we're going to the doctor. She, and my mom. So we ended up waiting until after Labor Day. I took her to um, Southside Regional. Okay. He went in for the emergency room to be evaluated. She never, she stayed 28 days. Oh, wow. And that's when she was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. Oh. And she had, her blood count was low. She was losing blood. Um, her diabetes was all over the place. And she also had, um, she had a tumor growing. The tumor had, the cancerous tumor had grown from her pancreas and was extending up and towards her lung. Mm. And um, so they had to put the um, bile bag on her. Right. And I think that was the longest 28 days of my life. Wow. Watching her go through this process. And so when she got out of the hospital, she started her chemo where well, they started it in the hospital and then she would go get her chemo, um, get her radiation. Um, she started a radiation two weeks later after she took her first two radiation pills. She said, I'm not doing this anymore. Oh, wow. And I'm like, what do you mean you're not doing this anymore? And she said, do you see how sick this is making me? Mm. This pill is killing me. It is killing me and I'm having no quality of life. Is it giving me probably quantity? Maybe, but we don't know. But I'd rather have quality of life 
versus quantity. And how old was she at this time? Mother was um, 62 years old. She was 62 and you were how old? I was, I had just turned, she was diagnosed on my 40th birthday. So I was 40. Okay. Wow. And so we, um, we stopped the chemo, we stopped the radiation. She went back and forth to the doctor, you know, she was being, and it just was, she was getting, she knew she was getting worse, but that gave her time to put things in order. Um, and she was back and forth in the hospital. She was losing a lot of blood. The tube and it was no longer, she ended up with a feeding tube. Um, the bile tube was not, it, it was working, but it was, it hurt. The tumor was so big, it kept pushing it out. Mm. And so she would, when it come out, she would bleed out. And so we've almost lost her because of the bleeding. And then she said, enough. And I'm like, okay. And that was on my 40th birthday when she said, I'm not doing this anymore. Take me home. Did you all have, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Did you all have hospice involved at that point? That point we had not. um, We had, we bought her home and tried to figure out what, you know, because we didn't know, you know, what did we do at this point? And she ended up back in the hospital again. No, no, she did. She came home and they had given us the information to back up. And, but I still didn't know I didn't know, understand it. So I was like, okay, let me just file third, you know, put it away and we'll figure out, talk about it later. And my mom told me, she was like, no, we need to pull out this paper. We need to talk about it because I need to come home on it and making sure everything is perfect. So we started off with, um, with one company. Once she got home, I ended up bringing her, uh, bringing her to my house. And so my husband and I became her caregivers and the home that we had bought. So, you know, that she could, live with us mm-hmm. out for retirement and hang out with us and it is now on her hospice house you know her hospice home and so we ended up getting rid of the first company well I ended up getting rid of the first company because one again I don't understand hospice. right I know what it is but it, everything's going through my mind this is my mom I don't care about anything right. and so they were it was the most the worst experience ever because when they called, it was like, you know, hi, Ms. Tucker, you know, what, what time can we come so that we can set up and do our assessment, you know, do the evaluation of social. And I think this was a social worker. And I said, well, um, this time is not good for me because I'm, she just got home. I'm trying to get to bed, trying to get everything situated, go pick her up her meds. I'm just running around. So mm-hmm. can we do this time? When she tell, she said, well, that time's not good enough. Well, it's not good for me. Mm-hmm. Well, you asked me when it was good for me. Right. And it doesn't matter about you at this point. And so that's how that company was dismissed. Mm-hmm. And I called the doctor, um, her physician, which was actually my help now had become my physician. And I told her and I was like, you know, my mom, I know that you're not, um, you don't do hospice. I know you don't do this, but you've been my medical doctor for over 20 years. Please take my mother as a patient. And mm-hmm. she took her. And so she called, told me who to call. She set it up with another company. They were there when I asked them to be there immediately. They got everything set up. They were absolutely amazing when it came to making sure she was set up. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that they forgot is, pa- is care, is family care, pastoral care, um, psychosocial care. 
that element was negate. And she just, no one was there. And I think that because everyone thought I was, you know, knew that I was a minister that, oh, you know, I'm going to be okay. I didn't never, I don't recall ever talking to a social worker to find out what we needed to do because I didn't know the processes of Mm -hmm. things that needed to be taken place and what I needed to take care of. I didn't know how that I was supposed to actually take care of me in that process Um, and who to talk to. Yes, I had friends and yeah, I do, I did have, I do have siblings, but my mom was dependent on me to take care of everything. Right. And so when I did that and I just was in the blind. Mm. No one took care of Donna. Mm. Other, you know, my husband was there, but I didn't know how to take care of me and how to handle my mother is dying. My best friend is dying. Right. I'm mad at God at this point. Mm. I don't care how much you, you know God and you're with God, you're walking with God. That does not mean that you will never be mad with God. That's right. And I was angry. Because I was like, God, I can lay hands, you know, on other people and they can be healed. I follow what you tell me to do. But yet I cannot heal my own mother. Mm. It hurt. And I had to get, it took a, it took everything in me to get past that hurt. But what helped me get past that and to deal with life was my mother. Mm. In her state, my mother witnessed to me. My wow. mother encouraged me. And, you know, I remember she would say, cry. And I'm like, no, I don't have time to cry. You know, I, I'm a big girl. I'm not going to cry. Right. And she was like, no, I want you to get in this bed. And I want you to cry with me. Just cry. Get it wow. all out your sisters. But what you will not do is you will not cry like you have no hope. Ah, that's a good word. And I said, well, I don't have any right now. Mm-hmm. And she said, you do have hope. As long as you have God on your side, you know that who God is, you believe who God is, mm-hmm. you trust God, then you have hope. And that's what you're going to hold on to. Not the fact that I'm dying because I'm dying because I'm ready. And I said, but why you? Why not me? And mm-hmm. I'm like, what do you mean? Why not me? And she was like, why not me? I have done every single thing that God has called me to do here on this earth. It is my time and I am okay. And wow. that's what got me through helping people, you know, helping her and, right. and dealing with where I was, helping my family, helping. That's what, so when people were like, oh, you, you know, when my mom died, I didn't cry. Well, because I was okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, it hurt. It hurt the core of my soul. Mm-hmm. But I knew that she gave me a mandate and responsibilities to do. I had to carry those things out because I had to get um, her granddaughter home. I had to get, make sure everybody else was in place and what needed to be done. Let everyone know. I didn't have time to, to wallow in my sorrow because she had already helped me in my pre-grief. Right. And then also one thing about you, you will cry when you need to cry, even to this day, like you don't hold it in. Right. And that has taught me that because if it hadn't been for her teaching me that, Mm -hmm then I probably would not be a crier. Right. So is that experience with your mom kind of like what brought you into the place of, because I know since I've known you, you were in law, 
Mm-hmm. But then you battled with that for an right. extensive period of time about going back to school. And then you had an issue, of course, with a particular school and all that kind of stuff. But then you were like, you know, you wanted to go back and you mm-hmm. wanted to make for sure that it wasn't just about your degree in um, divinity, but it was also about, I want to be, because I think I was like hospice, because I think me and some other people we know was like hospice and you're like no like for real like and the other person that we mutually know is like you really want to be and the words were around death or dead and you were like no like you felt like this was your calling so listening to your story it just seems that even though y'all had a rough time with one company it seemed like you you had an experience with your mom and you see how family can interact with the person who is transitioning and letting them go which I'll let you talk about that as well but um, then also you learned a lot and it seemed like through her experience, your mom ministered to you, but then it was laid upon your heart that, whoa, there's a need for mm-hmm. people to not only the religious aspect of it, far as chaplaincy, but also just the ability to grieve properly and to right. let go of your loved one. So obviously your mom is what was the catalyst. Is that Kind of like what got you into the hospice. And right after my, a month after my mom died, um, my a friend of mine asked me, one of her coworkers needed someone to take care of their loved one. Oh, okay. And I'm like, oh, no, no, it's only been a month. I can't go deal with nobody else dying. Right. And so I did it anyway. It wasn't about the money. It was like, okay, because I've gone back to work, you know, but okay, I'll do it. Let's see how this grows. And so I went to take care of him. And the crazy thing is one day I I would make him go out the house because he didn't want to go out the house. I was like, oh no, we get fresh air. We're going to get, even if you can't walk, we can roll you around the parking lot, you know, or, you know, you walk and I I got the chair behind you. And so for like a week, I would be on him and he finally went outside. And one day we came, we were walking and he said, your mom is so proud of you. Oh, and I'm like, <laughs> okay. And I said, um, thanks. <laughs> you know, he says, no, she really is. You look just like her. Oh, so I'm like, oh, stop. I don't know you. And you certainly don't know my mom. Right. He wasn't even from the area. They bought wow. him here to take care of him. And I was like, uh, so what did my mom look like? He was like, like you, like she looks exactly like you. You guys are like twins. And I said, okay. And I, that just freaked me out. Right. So the next day I came to work, I bought him a picture of my mom. Didn't say who it was. I said, who is this woman? He was like, oh, that's your mom. Wow. He says, she is smiling down from heaven. She is so proud of you. And she said to do what you're supposed to be doing. Oh, and I'm like, Oh my God. Okay. So between him and my mom, that though they are my catalyst. Now, did I move immediately? No, because we get caught up on the finances and how am I gonna pay my bills and how is everything gonna happen? Life started life. And right. so I just was scared to step out on faith and do it. One day, probably a few years later. I decided several years later, <laughs> I decided that um, I don't even remember applying for a hospice job. I, God is my witness. I don't think I applied for this job. And all I get this call 
And they says, well, we want to schedule an interview. Um, we have your resume. And I'm like, well, I can get my resume, but okay, because I haven't put it out there. And she said, we want you to come in for an interview. And I'm like, well, okay. I, mm-hmm. I don't have any experience, but okay. And it was PRN, which means it's, it's as needed. As needed, right. So I'm like, there is no way that I'm in Richmond. I'm going to drive to Newport News for PRN. Well, God, in the law firm, we had a really, really, really bad experience one day. <laughs> really bad experience. And I said, God, are you pushing me out of the door? Right. He's like, well, you don't have sense enough to go at it on your own. <laughs> so I'm going to have to literally push you out the door. Right. And that's what I did. I ended up, I got hired on the spot when I went for the interview. And uh-huh. I said, God, it's PRN. And I took it. Mm-hmm. I packed up my, uh, well, I didn't pack up immediately, but I started packing up because I knew I had to move eventually. My God is so humorous where I was staying, my lease ended mm-hmm. in December. And I'm like, God, I don't have nowhere to leave. So I ended up moving into a place, moved out a month later. Mm-hmm. So within that, from that month of me moving out of my of the house I was in, I was homeless. Right. So I stayed homeless for several months, you know, living in hotels and even you, you're still homeless, even if you, because you don't have your own address. Yep. And I stayed from pillow to post until I could get it straight. And I lost car, had to give it up. God's like, don't you look stupid sitting out here with nowhere to live and you driving a brand new car and you have a truck that's paid for. So I'm gonna need you to make the decision or I'm gonna make the decision for you. Mm. So on my 50th birthday, he made the decision for me because I didn't have sense enough to make it on my own. <laughs> and but I stayed the course and I'm like, God, no matter what everybody, no one understood. People criticized me. People talked about me. People say, just go back to the law firm. Go get, you know, I even interviewed at a law firm. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I can do this. I can, you know, I can't, I can't make it with just this. I got to right. have another job. But I stayed the course. And by staying the course, I am where I am now. Um, being a hospice provider, a hospice caregiver, um, so even at being in hospice, they, I didn't even have my CPE, which is clinical pastoral education. I didn't even have my units then when I got this job. You are required to have those units in order to work in any type of chaplaincy. And that's how I know it was God. Yeah. Because I should not have been doing what I was doing. So I started in between, I worked full time, worked, start and got into PRN, but I was working full time hours, even though I was still PRN. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to CPE at eight o'clock from eight to 12, from 12 until 4.30, I worked with patients from 5.30 until 11. I went to do my, um, internship working at doing my residency in the hospital. Right. So I was seeing patients for the, for the CPE qualifications. And then I was started all over again. So I did an intensive so that I could get it done. Um, and then after that, I just started, I stayed with that company for several years, ended up with the other. So the whole, the premise of all of that is to say that the reason I knew that I needed to be into in hospice was one, I never wanted another family to feel what I felt, that I felt my mother should not have been the one. 
to give me the psychosocial support that I needed. Right. My mother should not have been the one who was giving me the pastoral care that I needed. Um, the churches weren't there. Mm-hmm. No one was there. I was alone. And so I promised God that if you allow me to be a chaplain, I promise no one will ever, I don't care who it is, mm-hmm. from atheist to the holiness, to, you know, it doesn't matter that no one will ever feel alone because it's not so much about religion because God is not going to ask us what our denomination is when we get to heaven. It's about what that relationship, building relationships, making sure that person is in a good place when they leave this earth, that they have all of the mental things and and check boxes Mm -hmm. checked off, that you know that I am okay with dying. That is the important part that your family says it's okay for you to go. Um, I just recently had to tell a 98-year-old lady to tell her son, wow, her baby son, her, he was the youngest child, that it was okay for him to go. Wow. And she said, I can't do it. I feel like I'm lying. And I said, no, you're going to go and you're going to say exactly what you feel. I don't want you to go, but right. I know I have to. And because that- I think I'm glad you brought up the point about far as chaplaincy and being um far as the religion and spiritual because I think sometimes when people hear the word chaplain they automatically think oh my god it's Christian or it's this or it's that but I remember working in the prison and it wasn't that it was the chaplain accommodated everyone um so I'm glad you brought that up because there is a huge myth out there that is only pertaining to a religious type of situation so a lot of people back off of the chaplaincy part with hospice like they might receive hospice they they may not want to receive I don't want the chaplain because of spiritual so I'm glad you spoke on that that is not just about religion exactly and I tell most um my patients let me get my foot in the door and right. talk and let you see that I could care less about really, you know, I'll, I'll give you a sermon if you want a sermon, but that's right. not what I'm here for. I'm here to make sure that from a spiritual standpoint and spiritual is relationship spirit, you know, that's what spiritual means. It's about relationship to make sure that you have a relationship or whatever your higher being is, that you have a relationship with yourself, that you have a relationship right. with family, that families are mended before you close your eyes. Because if you don't have that place, that right. peace, then that makes your transition twice as hard, 10 times as hard, because you are struggling with the letting go. You're struggling with things that you get the resolve. And then my job is to literally make sure that you are in a good place to go. Wow. That's beautiful. I like the way you word that because sometimes you don't hear it worded that way. Um, so explain exactly what hospice you, you pretty much kind of hit on it, but consists of far as including your role. And then also if you could kind of go into which you've kind of explained, but also the six month, cause you always hear like hospice for six months, then right. the person does transition fine, but if they don't, then what happens? Could they come right. back? Like if you could kind of go into that, but primarily so, like what's your role first? Because I think we talked about maybe having somebody else on that can give another role within right. hospice. Exactly. Um, but primarily with your role, because I, Donna, I, I mean, <laughs> you've done beyond chaplaincy work in um, in hospice. And I know that just from what 
I know you as a person and things that you have done um, that, you know, your patients allow right. you to share or whatever, but I, I've known like you, you've done a lot in chaplaincy and, but what is the primary role for you specifically? And then if you could go into the, about the six month time frame. Okay. My primary role is chaplain and bereavement coordinator. Okay. So what I do is I'm a part of what's considered, we call the psychosocial team. The psychosocial team consists of the chaplain and your social worker. Um, The chaplain is supposed to take care of your spiritual needs, spiritual and emotional needs. The the social worker takes care of um, your psychosocial, you know, social, emotional needs as well, social needs, as well as things that you may need within the community, within, you know, for resources. Um, what I do once I go in is I just make, like I said, I make sure that you are in a good place. Um, some, and I tell families, our job, my job is not just to minister to you or to just be there for you, but it's also to be there for the family. Because even if they turn, you know, I, there may be a day that I'm in there talking to the patient and there may be a day that I'm talking to the family. And it is all, it's making sure that funeral arrangements are made. Mm-hmm. It is making sure that even if, um, cremation, whatever it is, making sure that everything that you need is in place, even if it's me helping you with the funeral, helping you plan it, helping mm-hmm. you make sure you got clothes, making sure you have everything that you need for those final days so that the process is easier. Um, as the bereavement coordinator and the chaplaincy, it kind of works out because when um, we the, uh, the social worker does what we call a risk assessment, mm-hmm. that determines whether or not you know, you're going to need your high, low, medium, medium. Um, me, once you get to a medium standpoint, then that's when I step in um, with the patients because I or the patients and the caregivers because I want to start doing pre-grief. I said, you know, okay. doing the pre-grief because it's easier to start doing it during the process of them going through that versus waiting to the very end. And now I have to try to get you to the place of comfort when I can okay. get you to the place of comfort going through that process with him, that you are able to grieve why he's still here and that he, under, he or she understands that it's okay to grieve with the patient and let them know that it's okay. Um, so that's kind of, that's in a, in a gambit of what I do. Um, the six months, when you come into hospice, um, a doctor or hospital, they will, or social worker are being able, whenever your condition is listed as terminal, you have no longer any options left for treatment when they're, um, you have elected not to further any type of treatment, life, life-sustaining treatment, then you come into hospice. Once you come, you are a candidate for hospice, put it okay. Then we send out an assess, uh, a nurse who assesses, and that nurse will assess whether or not that you are a, you qualify for hospice under the hospice standards. Um, six months to a year. That's what they, that's the, um, that's what the law says, okay. or what the guidelines say, six months to a year. We have had patients that have been on for years, you know, for a couple of years. Um, it based on, because you can, it's based on decline, because even oh. every um, three months, there is a evaluation, which we call recertification, where they are looking at your condition to see if there is any type of decline whether it's weight, whether it's mental, whether it's, um, you know, your, your cancer has spread or whether, you know, we're looking at all of those things, but you cannot during those, that stage 
you cannot do any type of life sustaining anything. Oh, okay. Um, because if you do, then you are no longer qualified. Qualified. If you go to the hospital, you are no longer on hospital. Really? It means you are actually going for life sustaining. That we will send you. To, yeah, if we will send you to the hospital if there is a situation that is not um, your diagnosis related. Okay. If diagnosis related, then you cannot go to the hospital. Say if you fall and break a hip. Right. And that's not your, then we, yes, you need to go to the hospital and get that. Because it's not sure related to what exactly. you're in hospice for. Okay, I got you. So like so, you, have, you have breast cancer and you're terminal, but I don't know, you call COVID. If you want to take, right. a, 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 you know, something that is going to treat you, then no, you cannot be on, there is no treatment. Yet you can stay on like blood pressure pills. You can stay on diabetes, you know, anything that is, you know, related, non-related, you can stay on those things. Okay. Um, but not for treatment. And it all determines by the doctor, mm-hmm. who our medical director and the nurse who evaluate and all of our notes. So they look at all of our notes. We do inter- um, interdisciplinary meetings every two weeks. Um, and we meet and discuss every patient. And we talk about decline. We talk about what's going on with everything. And those, at that point, it kind of determines whether you stay or go. Okay. And so when you're helping also within this, is this, so this next part I'm getting ready to ask you about, is this you or the social worker or who, when it comes to like, I guess DNR would be more the nurse, I would say. DNR, um, we, the nurse, when Which you is do not on, resuscitate, guys. Right, do not resuscitate. Yeah. Um, when you come onto services, the admission nurse, we strongly 100% ask that you sign because if not, we about everyone, you know, all of us are trained in CPR, but if a nurse is there and you, they have, you decide not to call CP, you know, not to sign a DNR, then that means they're on your chest, pounding your chest. They're breaking ribs. They're going to do whatever because they have to call 911. Um, even if you're on hospice, if you don't sign that DNR, we have, they have to give you CPR. So it's still up to the patient. It is up to the patient. Um, but based on the condition, we recommend it. Okay. Especially, I guess, if someone's like really fragile. Right. If someone's fragile or you're on hospice because you have a terminal. Right. And because you are expected to train. Okay. So the other part, which also not signed it until the very end, you know, until it gets to the point where they know that you're close to transitioning. Okay. So a lot of families, and I don't know if hospice helps helps with this or not, but I know for sure you have helped with this in law. Um, a lot of people don't have living wills. A lot of people, I talked a little bit about it the last uh, last week about. You know, even if you don't have a power of attorney, a general power of attorney, get a medical power of attorney. Um, Are those some of the things that you all address if the family doesn't have like a living will or even even though it may be expensive, but even life insurance at that point? Like, is that something that you all kind of talk to the family about? um, Everybody, if you you have if you cannot speak for yourself or you are if there's dementia, there has to be a power of attorney whether a power attorney or a guardianship, there has to be something in place um, okay. so that we can make sure that there is someone who can make decisions for you. If, um, you know, and I've given, the social workers now have a power of attorney form that they can give to families. 
um, free of charge because we wanna make sure that those documents are in place. They now also have a medical, um, an advanced medical directive. Um, the difference between a power of attorney and a medical advanced directive, they are two separate documents. Right. One gives permission to handle affairs when you are not able to handle the affairs. It can also include medical, it can include financial, it can include property, real estate, taxes, et cetera. It is a durable medical power of attorney. People, there is a difference between right. Right. a regular power of attorney and a durable. A durable covers everything that you can do. That's what that does. Your advanced medical directive is when you need to, you want to make sure that if you have to go to the hospital or you have to make a decision that you cannot make, you don't want somebody to pull that plug, you better do that advanced medical directive because no one should have to make that decision for you. That is a hard decision for your family members to struggle through. Make your wishes known so that people know what it is that you want. And you can be very specific. I know um, like a family member that was in my family, um, as you know, uh, you can be very specific. They can, they can. Um, and if I'm wrong, please stop me. But if they only want to be on life support for two weeks, they can specify it. Two weeks, take me off. Yes. Or, um, and things if, that if there is no I think sometimes people make it very general. Back, you have right. to, you specify what it is that you want. Um, and a lot of the hospitals is called five wishes. And those are your five wishes and I wish to have this done. I wish to have this done. They give you five things that you can list and how you want to list it. And you can write it out yourself. And then it is notarized by the hospital staff. And that, you know, which this isn't really, I guess it's kind of similar to hospitals. Not really, but anyhow, it was a patient. I always think about this patient that I had one time that was dying. Um, it was a suicide case, mm -hmm. supposedly anyway. But anyhow, um, so she was dying and the husband had complete rule over everything and he took her off of everything but we could tell she was still responsive mm -hmm. but he took her off everything and there was nothing nobody could do so if she had like and there's a whole story behind this but say if she had like a sister or someone and she over yeah, that yeah, person yeah. overrode it with that particular uh power of attorney then it could stop him because we were trying to let him know she's starving to death mm -hmm. but he didn't care it was sort of like, so she's basically starved to death right. um, because the TPN, which is total parental nutrients, all that was taken off. Um, NG tubes, everything was taken away. TPN away, that's it. Yeah. And she literally starved to death, but we knew based off medically and scientifically, her heart rate would go up when the kids came in and it was just certain things. And there's still some brain. Yeah. And he just. Yeah. So if she had uh, had that document in place. Um, it would have say it could have, she could still be here or right. you know, she could have been here long enough to do other things. You know, I, I just think that I personally think it's selfish to not have pre-planning for, you know, have the advanced medical directive. I think that it is selfish to not have a, um, the will or not have, you know, any of those documents, a living will, which is similar to the advanced medical directive that those, because they give your wishes, they tell people what it is that you want without having to play the guessing game. Um, yeah. It is selfish to not have life insurance and to have, um, and yeah, I don't care if people get mad or not. I think it's selfish to have not have those things in place because your family now has to figure out how to bury you. And most people, um, most Baptist people don't want to be cremated. 
Mm-hmm. And but it's that is the that is the cheapest. Right. You can get cremated for twenty five hundred dollars or less. Yeah, it was it's it's expensive and a funeral just, is running fifteen thousand yeah, dollars. That's cheap, cheap. That's cheap. Yeah. We have thank God connections with with you know the family funeral homes I've gone around with where that will set you know that will work with families that we can get one for except couple you know thousand dollars. But if you don't have it, where mm-hmm. you know you have to, and I always tell my families. Even when you're planning your funeral, even if you have life insurance, you still have to live after this. Right. And I think that's kind of sometimes where we get lost in the transition, the communication piece within the family dynamic, because like we want to honor that they wanted, they didn't want to be burned. They wanted right. to have a casket. It's like, okay, but we, my children already told me, mom. <laughs> and I mean, I'm trying to make light of this because this is a heavy topic and a lot of people don't want to discuss it, but it's just so true. My, both of my children told me you either have something in place or you might get cremated because that's the cheapest we can go. Um, And they, well, you know, my kids, they're outspoken, um, Justice and Gabby, but they're like, going to try to honor everything you want. And I have everything written and in place and stuff. They were, and I, but I told them, I said, look, have some things set aside, you know, the policies and stuff. However, if you feel you're about to go in debt to put me in the ground, I need for you not to do that and just go, I'm not that's my thought though. That's right. not everybody's thought. That's not everybody's religion so or spiritual, spiritual, you know, beliefs. is make a phone call. Right. It's paid for. It's done. Everything is already outlined because I don't want her to have to figure out what to do, you know, in her emo- in an emotional state. Right. Everything is already taken care of. If she can't even make the call, there is a backup for someone else to make the call because right. it is too much when you are going through already the mental aspect of it, that just put things in order yeah. while you have an opportunity to do them. Don't wait until you are sick and dying or you're dead and then here comes the GoFundMe. Right. There are too many places that will take, even with health, without health screenings, there are places that will take life insurance and stop getting the term life insurance policies and get a whole life. So because the term, you're taking the money off of it. So when it's time to bury you, you don't have any money to bury you because yeah, you're borrowing from the policy. Yeah. Some people I know they were going to reverse it, but they didn't have a chance. They passed they away. And, and they also have cancer policy. Yeah, they do. You have cancer, take out a policy. Yeah. Utilize because- what's out there. I would rather pay now than have my family struggling trying to figure out how to pay for it at the end. And I think the beauty of having these conversations and hopefully I can get this funeral director that I know to come on and I'm not trying to be morbid, but it's just something that people need to know because they're in some situations, not everybody's situation, but like there's certain things that are out there that people can utilize and they can call. Like some people don't even know so not very much, but there has been times where I was able to help clients with uh, contacting their social worker and say with social actually, services provide. Yeah, and then not that much though. Sometimes, they but do, there some places do two fifty. The max is five hundred. Right. right, and then you have also if you add for them thing where they can set up. It's almost like a GoFundMe. Some of the funeral homes have it. It's almost uh-huh. similar, very similar to a GoFundMe, um, but they set it up for you and you, uh-huh. ma- you know, you send it out 
to those that need to go or post it where it needs to post. And that money goes directly into that, that account, into that oh, fund. Wow. And it pays for your funeral. It pays, well, they only, they do it for cremation, not, not for your full funeral, but it helps take care of the cost. So right. that, you know, and anything that is left over out of that, it goes to the individual, to the care, to the family. Oh, that's nice. And I know that a lot of times if you have like a case manager or you're connected to hospice, for me, it was, I was doing case management and I was able to basically advocate on behalf of the client. So I was able to get the social worker involved. And then that wasn't that much, but it was some, but then I was able and people I'm telling you right now, networking is everything, not just networking, your personality. Yes. Everything. Could you go in there being nasty or, you know, like, well, I need this and I need that. They're not maybe going to help you. But I went in there very professional. I allowed, you know, the family to, they signed over the disclosure form for me to talk on behalf of them. And he was like, there's not many people out here in the world like you. Because of that, we'll do it for this amount. And they were able to cover it. That doesn't happen all the time. But I think with you sharing what you, your experience as being a chaplain for hospice is really letting people know, because I didn't even know some of the things that you mentioned today about the things that you all offer. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just so vital because even when insurance, which hopefully I'll have an insurance agent to come on soon with that, there are like for myself, I, I was like, dang it. I bumped up my insurance. Didn't know if I could, because I had cancer, but they went off the type of cancer I had. Yeah. So because of the type of cancer, I was able to do it with ease. However, if something comes back and it's a different stage, then I'm going to probably run into some problems, but there's still stuff out there to get a cancer policy with pancreatic cancer. You don't live with pancreatic cancer. Right. Right. He was able to get it with that. And then they also have um, autonomy donations. Okay. So if you cannot afford a funeral at all, and based, you are also able to do body donation. Hmm. Body donation allows, it, it sends your body, takes your body to science. And oh, allows, yes. That allows okay. them to be able to utilize your body for certain, you know, for certain causes to hmm. be able to check and to make sure everything is okay. So there are so many avenues that you can do because now you're not, you're helping the world because you're able, I had one patient just donated their eyes. Wow. Um, they donated, you know, you still can do organ. Don't, if you're an organ donor, when you do the autonomy donation, they're still going to take those, those organs that are not affected and utilize them. Right. A lot of people get scared about the organ the donor. donation, but I try to let them know all the time. I remember working in the hospital. They have to keep you on life support because if not, organs are going to die. So they keep you on life support. So it's not, a lot of people think, oh, no, they're going to pull the plug and they're going to kill me so I didn't take my organs. That's not true. Um, I've watched it plenty of times, unfortunately, when I worked in the ICU and I watched how long person may have to be on life support before transport could get there or the family make the, you know, because the family has to make that decision or either unless you have it on your driver's license. And it's not on my driver's license, but, um, but you can have it in living will. Right. I have the living will. So, you know what I want it. I don't, it's, it's in plain. Um, but the autonomy, autonomy donation 
if you're on hospice is once we make that call, they have to be there within an hour, within an hour, because they have to get you on ice, you know, get you on ice, on ice, so to speak, so that your organs can stay until you can get to the next spot. But a lot of people who just don't have the money and who, you know, to do a cremation, to do anything. And as long as it's not something and you have to apply for that within a reasonable amount of time, we try to get people as soon, you know, within six months or, or earlier so that people know that that's what you want to do, you know, that they will examine your records. They will examine things, look at what type of cancer, or what type of whatever. They want to make sure that it's nothing that's spreadable or something, you know, there's no problems with your eyes, no cataracts or anything. You're, there's so many things that even after death, there is hope. Yeah. And I think that we have to really talk about it because <clears throat> Some people can't afford it, point blank period. The treatment costs too much. Everything's costing too much to stay alive. And so that's a that's a reality of it all. Like it's so much that we have to do. Like you said, life is life and sometimes. And right. there's so much we have to do while we're alive that it's like, yeah, I'm thinking about death, but I can't really give to that. I can't give additional money to a life insurance policy right. or I can't give additional money to a funeral home to pay for my funeral, uh, pay for it in advance. But to know this information that you're sharing, because I think also where you get a little, a little perturbed about is that people who can't afford all these things and don't do it, and then they end up having to do a GoFundMe at the end when they could have really afforded it. And that's right. not everybody, but there's some people out there who can't afford to get things situated in the manner in which they should. But you a lot of times they don't want a funeral. You don't have to, if you don't have the whole amount. You right. can, be, I mean, not after death, but right. you can finance yeah. it. But before death, if you want to take $10 a month, take whatever, if you, even if you have to get a term life, in, life insurance policy right. because it's cheaper, do what you have to do. Just get something. Right. And it's the term sad that when a person dies, that now you're standing there because you can't call, figure out what you don't know, have a funeral home to call or the body has to stay in the funeral home for 20 days and plus because you don't have money to pay for it. Each time, every day that that body is in that funeral home, you are being charged. Yeah, I was about to say, you have to be, you're charged for it, unfortunately. Yep, every day. And because I don't think the body can stay in the morgue, but for so long. No, because then at that point- At the hospital. Right, or or even at the funeral home, it can't stay there forever. Right. So, you know, they'll preserve it as long as they can. But then after that point, it then goes to a facility, you know, go, they're going to, they, they will do cremate you. And then you will go to a, um, a cemetery that is for indigent people. That's what I thought. Cause I know before it used to be like, they had like a plain box or something that they would yep. put people nope, they just, they do, I think most of the time they do cremation now. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So I would say far as like, when it comes to you doing hospice what do you think that some people need to be leery of when it comes to hospice like they're trying to get hospice for their family you did speak of some things that happened to you but if you could give us some examples of things that people really need to be leery of when it pertains to like a chaplain um ask questions that's your biggest thing if you don't know something ask um Mm -hmm. don't assume that the chaplain is coming there to do anything other than what I, what I tell you from the beginning, because that's what I set up in my care plan. What I tell, what you tell me you want, 
that's what I provide. Um, yes, I go above, you know, go extra, but I want to be, and so we, our goal is to always honor a person's beliefs, a person's culture, a person's um, nationality. We try to honor everything because you may have a Muslim. There are certain things that have to be done. There are certain right. things that a woman can't do when it comes to that religion. There are certain things in Hinduism, every, you know, and, and even with Jehovah Witness, there are certain things that's that that are required and that we try to make sure that we're honoring so if you feel like ever that your personal beliefs and your personal religion is not being honored say something mm. because we don't ever want to be disrespectful to your household we don't ever want to be disrespectful to that what you believe in or don't believe in we want to honor you because of the person that you are, no matter what. And that includes your family. If anything, um, if you feel like pain is not, you know, whether pain is not being managed, if you feel like that they're not getting back the way they should, anything that you know that allows that person to remain in a dignified state that is not happening, whether it's from a mental, spiritual, social, or physical, say something. You are your own advocate, even in your house on hospice. Okay. So the patient is as well as the care. Oh, absolutely. The primary caregiver. Now I tell people the primary caregiver and the patient are those who I talk to. Okay. Now, if there are other family members, can you call? No, ma'am, I can't. Because that's how you have miscommunication. Okay. Now we can have a family meeting so everybody can get all the information at one time or you can call them on three-way when I'm on there, but I'm not calling this one because one that it's not listed for that person to be right. talked to. So I'm going to communicate with those persons that are listed on the, our information sheet. Those are the ones that we contact. Okay. So have a responsible advocate for you. A responsible person list that person as the one who can care, who can be your caregiver. Um, if you live alone, we and your condition is deteriorating, we are gonna recommend that you go into a facility. Okay. Because if you cannot take care of yourself, if you cannot make your needs met, you cannot make, you know, all do all of those things, then you cannot care for yourself. You cannot, if, if you have dementia and you're staying alone, right. there's no way you can a, be able to administer medication properly on your own. So anything that becomes a safety issue then we're going to recommend that you get into a facility or we're going to um, call APS. Okay, can you explain what that is? Adult Protective Services. Okay. If, I, if an adult is not being taken care of properly, if I come in your home and every person, every one of us are mandated reporters, if I come into your home in situations, we talk to you about it and I see something still after you had a conversation with and it's still going to the left, if you're not caring for that person, or if that person's getting wounds, or they're not being, or whatever's happening, they're hungry, they're not, you're going to get reported. So what she's saying, basically, is that, and, and I'm familiar with the agency as well, because as a case manager, you know, we did CPS, C, Child Protective Services, CPS, and then we did also APS. So a lot of people don't know about it, though. A lot of people think, oh, they, they're only can tell about children. No, no, no. we can report about adults. And elderly people, um, you know, which fall under that bracket, if there's any type of harm being done or we suspect it, 
yes, we can report you. Um, even if your loved one is in a facility, if you right. feel like your loved one is not being taken care of properly, not just because you don't like the person or how, what they're doing, but right. if they are, you see physical aspects, whether it's physical, whether it's verbal abuse or whether it's mental abuse, any type of abuse, you can contact the Commonwealth and report them. That's right. So please make sure y'all do that because there's so many elderly people, not just elderly, but disabled, disabled veterans. Yeah, that are being abused constantly and no one's reporting it because all they're thinking about is child protective services. And it's right. like, no, 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 no. There's a whole nother branch to that. Right. Um, so yes, that's good information to know. So um, is there any last final words as far as dealing with hospice that you want to share, especially to the caregivers or even to someone who is contemplating about right. being on hospice or is on a hospice right My now? My biggest thing is don't wait to come on hospice when you are at the point of death. Okay. And I say that because, again, you want to have quantity over quality. We want you to have, um, I mean, quality over quantity. We mm -hmm. want you to have a long time. We, that's our goal because we want to take care of you. We want to love on you. We want to do whatever. But don't wait until you are at the point where now we're rough. You're not getting to spend that quality time with your family because you are either um, bedridden and can't do anything and your, your, your mental capacity is gone. When you know the doctor has said, or you, there is, you have cancer and there is nothing else that can be done. Just because you're on hospice, that doesn't, we, we, we're not God. We don't know right. that you're going to die within six months. We, you could die. You know, we all could die immediately. Mm -hmm. Don't wait. I'd rather you come on hospice and have us put you off. Right. Then not come on. And then at the last minute, we are in your home struggling, trying to get you a bed. We're in your home trying to make sure you got all those comfort meds in place. We're in your home trying to make sure every aspect is together. Let us come in, love on you as soon as we can. Mm -hmm. Hospice does not, and I tell people, hospice is not your death sentence. Right. Your death sentence comes from God. Let us come and love on you. Let us be that extra set, set of eyes. You have a nurse, you get a nurse, you get a whole care team. You get a, a, a CNA that's going to help come with you fast as needed. You know, if you don't want it, you don't have to have it. You're going to get your chaplain. You're going to get your social worker. You're going to get your nurse that comes in. And you're going to be evaluated by your, not your information. The doctor may not come in. But if your nurse is coming in, that is your doctor. Okay. Let us get do that sooner rather than later. Don't miss out on quality time that you can have with your family because we can make sure, you know, do our best to keep you comfortable so that you can enjoy life as much as possible. We want you to travel. We want you to go. We want you to do things that you can and enjoy life. But when you get to the point where you can't go, yeah. you've lost whatever quality that's left. And it's a personal choice and people can get it or not, but I just wanted everyone to know that because these aren't always topics that we like to talk about at all right. because it seems so final, but right. like you said, none of us are the author, um, the, the beginning or the end of our right. lives. Like we don't know when we're going to leave this right. earth and transition from here. But one thing for sure is like, if 
I wanted people to just have the comfort and the the information to know that this is not a death sentence. Like you exactly. said, this is something exactly. to just try to help you along with what they told you, what your options are after you've chosen that you do not want any more care. Right. This can help you and exactly. possibly help you for 10, 20, 30 more years, well, not exactly. necessarily six months. Right. We had one lady, she literally prayed her husband off of hospice. Wow. And she told me, and he was at, when I say he was at death's door, wow. he was at death's door. She prayed every single day over him. And, and that's, and she fed him healthy foods when he was able to eat. She mm -hmm. gave him, she massaged him. She did whatever she needed to do. She was like, I will pray you off of here. And that he's still living. And I think sometimes, you know, it's, it can be either, you know, we're just going to see what God's will is. But in the meanwhile, exactly. we're just going to take care of you and right. make sure you're you're okay while we exactly. still have to spend time with you. Yeah. And you I think that's time. the beauty of it mm -hmm. all. Um, okay. So I have a question for you about your song. So you chose a song. You chose one song. I couldn't find it. <laughs> then you gave me something different. So if yeah. you want to, you can talk about either or. But before you do that, please let everyone know where they can find you. Because I know now you are a pastor over a church. So if you yeah. want to get that information and also where they can find you on Facebook, if you want them to follow or social media, wherever, feel free. Yeah. Go ahead. So I am now the pastor of um, Heritage United Methodist Church. I am a cross-cultural pastor, which means that we are working to build the gap between um, races and cultures. Um, and I am located in Virginia Beach. <laughs> We're located in Virginia Beach, Virginia on Baker Road. So please feel free to come by. We are open. We start service every Sunday at 10 o'clock. Um, I also, you can find me on Facebook at Donna, on, under Donna Tucker or under Instagram at I am that woman brand. Right. And the name of the church again, Heritage? Heritage United Methodist Church. Okay. And what's your service times in case of my Service mind. starts at 10 a.m. every Sunday morning. Okay. We have a second service um, that will start back in August, which would be at 1130, which is our contemporary service. Okay, great. Thank you. And she's still doing hospice too. On yes, top of I that. am at Suncrest Hospice in Virginia Beach. We are um, worldwide. The only area we do not cover is Newport. We don't cover the peninsula, which we consider Newport News, um, Williamsburg, Yorktown. We don't cover that area, but we cover Suffolk. We cover Portsmouth, Chesapeake, oh, wow. Virginia Beach, and um, past Chapango. Wow, that's a large area. And okay. we other countries, I mean, other um, states too. So you can go ahead and tell us what your song, um, I don't know which one you want to do. The one that everybody has heard, if they looked at the reel, was by Moon Soul Child, I think it is. Yes. Um, so if you could just tell us why you chose that. I chose that song because it literally talks about, um, it gives a depiction of we all have issues. We all have had some hard times. We all have had some trials and tribulations, um, but, but we make it through as long as you keep your focus. And, and it's about confessing your stuff right. and staying true to who you are. And 
when you start talking about where where you've been and what you that you messed up and that you did this and that nobody can hold that against you because you've already put it out there right and so the moment that we start it, it speaks to me because it says who I really am wow and part of who you really are you just graduated from where and with what <laughs> I graduated again, but I, I graduated in May, on May 13th of this year from with my master's in, in theology from the Virginia Union School of Theology at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor. Congratulations. And, and now you're working currently yes. on? Now I am working on my doctoral degree, my doctor in ministry degree. I will be attending, um, well, I am attending. <laughs> the United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Congratulations on all that thank wonderful you. success. Thank you. Thank now, you. please leave us with one word that you would like to share with everyone that can help them with their wounds as they heal into scars. Hope. Okay. And I say hope is because no matter what you're going through, no matter what you've been through or what you're you are still facing. As long as you keep hoping something, you keep hope that there is a better tomorrow. You keep hope that there is one day going to be a cure. You keep hope in that God I know, or, or whoever your being is, that I know that this road seems hard, but I'm going to hope that things are going to get better. I'm going to hope that my families are mended. I'm going to hope that my heart is healed. When you have hope, you what can they, the world take from you? Right. Because hope is something that no one gives you. Hope is something that you have earned and something that you have gained through your experiences. Beautiful. I have a word for you because that's what I do. I leave with words too. So, <laughs> so your word is protector. I was laying down, sitting down, wasn't feeling that great earlier today. And I was like, okay, let me think a little bit more on this word for her. And I start thinking about just how long we've known each other, which been 20, what was that? 2013, was it 26? I don't even remember. 2013, because I think my sister got sick in 2016. I knew you before that. So I think around 2013 or something, 2015, somewhere around there. So I've known you that long. Um, and through it all, you have been a protector. And what I see in you, which is perfect for, who you are in God and what you do in hospice and what you do. And I'm sure people heard your passion when it's like, don't leave your family behind with, you know, and you meet you that's coming from a very sincere place because you are a protector of people, not just God's people, but all people, you're a protector, you're tenacious with that protection. So I would say you continue to be the protector that you are as God guides you into these other arenas in life far as being a shepherd, which is also a protector over the flock, continue to protect, continue to allow God to protect you and you continue to protect the people of God and those who aren't necessarily believers, but continue to protect those who he bring your way. So that's the word that I'll leave with you, that you are truly a tenacious, fierce protector and continue to carry that oil because that's what it is. That's what we know it to be. Um, it's not just a word. It's an assignment. So. Thank you. You're you almost made me cry. Oh, 
You are. And, you know, even when I was going through with breast cancer, you protected me through prayer. We didn't see each other all the time, but you protected me. You protected me with phone calls. When I was going through with my sister, you protected me. Um, it didn't matter what time of night. You were even driving to North Carolina one time and you protected me when I had no one. You were there other than God. So I thank you for all of that, but I know you not to be that just for me, but other people. So continue to do that. So without further ado, this is the end of another Our Scars Speak episode. We thank each and every one of you for being a part tonight, whether you have joined on Facebook Live or you're going to listen later. We thank you for this time that you share with us. Please remember that your scars that are mental and physical, they speak a story. And when you're ready, share that story because you can heal someone else with their wounds as they're producing the scars to protect themselves. So I thank you all. I love you all. Until we meet again, goodbye. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Our Scars Speak. And we hope you can join us again real soon. Meanwhile, remember that our mental and physical scars speak a story that can help heal the wounds of another.